0: My dad died. I miss my friends because of...
1: I don't know how to tell my friends that.
0: I want to help my friends. I don't know how.
1: The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my class?
0: The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is The Morning Meeting and welcome to The Morning Meeting. I'm Mandy Zucker, the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to Brienne Leeson. She is an artist, a creator from North Texas, Dallas, and she's going to share with us a story about when she was in college, she had a near-death experience and how that changed her whole college experience basically because of the trauma that she went through as well as the support that she did or may not have gotten afterwards. So, Brianne, thank you so much for coming to the podcast today.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: I'm really glad that you're here. You have a very interesting story. Um, But before we even get into your story, why don't you just tell us a quick little, who are you and what do you do? And
1: Oh, I am Brianne. I am from Dallas, Texas. I own a business called Bellana Arts. Um, And it's an art collective for uh, gender marginalized and LGBTQ folks Mm -hmm. in Dallas. Um, And when there's not a pandemic, I am setting up and selling our art every weekend, selling other artists stuff, my stuff. um, And I also create and write and voice act in my own podcast. It's a comedy, audio drama, fiction thing. It's today's lucky winner. And uh it is about death, weirdly. So uh but it's it's an interesting title, the lucky winner when you're talking yeah. about death. Yes. <laughs> it's I swear it's positive, it's not like dark. Mm-hmm. I believe you. So yeah. I do a lot of positive talk about death. So. but yeah, that's me. I live with my three dogs and my husband. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on. I'm really glad that I
0: found you. You had a really interesting story. Um, You know, this podcast is really about supporting grieving college students. And I think I found you because you had shared that you had a near-death experience in college. Yes. um, Which we could talk about briefly, but really I want to talk about like what, what that did to your whole college experience and the relationships that you had and how that whole you know, going through a really serious illness, what that did to your experience in college. So can you just like in two minutes, explain what happened to you?
1: Yeah. um, I was feeling weird. Uh, Weird is probably an understatement. I was feeling sick um, Mm -hmm. shortly before uh, junior year. And I decided I needed to figure out what was happening to me. So I was taking the semester off. Okay. Um, fast forward to October of 2010, and lots of doctors telling me I wasn't sick. I had had uh, pulmonary embolisms, so blood clots in my lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I nearly died because I had a genetic clotting disorder, I have, it's the opposite of hemophilia. It's thrombophilia. Okay. Um, and my blood just clots too fast because I'm like the lamest X-Men in the world. <laughs> That's my mutant power. And it was because I had been taking oral contraceptive, which is a big no-no when you have a clotting disorder. Ah. So that led to another several months of me having, t- I had to take the next semester off to help get rid of those blood clots hanging out in my lungs. And then you did eventually go back to college. I did. Yes. So, you were like 20-ish when this it was happening? happened. Um, I had the clots when I was 19 on October 26th and my birthday is on November 12th. So, it was right before I turned 20. Okay. Okay. So, that's horrible and incredibly scary. I can't even
0: imagine being 19, almost 20, and um, almost dying like that. And I, you know, you and I have talked before, so I've heard a bit more of that story. It's it's way more complicated than what you just shared. It was a really scary experience.
1: So it was an ordeal.
0: Yeah. yeah ordeal. Um, so what was it like just emotionally for you as a 19, 20 year old going through such a scary, life threatening illness?
1: I, I think confusion and disappointment were probably the two words that come to mind. The confusion was like, I'm 19. This Mm -hmm. isn't supposed to happen at this age. Yeah. Like I, I'm like overly responsible. I'm, I didn't want to miss school. And I'm, I'm that like overachiever. I have to get everything done perfectly. Then the disappointment that I wasn't gonna finish school when I thought I was. And what's my new normal going to look like? I was so confused because the doctors were confused too, because 19-year-olds generally don't get life-threatening blood clots like that. Yeah. So just also I think some grief about expectations I had too that I knew weren't going to happen anymore. I I had all these plans. Uh that year of college, I was living with my boyfriend. I had already picked, like, oh, I'm gonna take this class. I love this professor. And it was junior year, and I was such the overachiever. I like started college with basically as a sophomore with all my credits. Right. And I was excited because this year I got to take most, like I think I had one thing that wasn't part of my major. Mm -hmm. So I was just academically excited. Um, and I wasn't going to get those. And some of those weren't offered the next semester. So it's like, well, when am I going to get to do these things I wanted to do? Yeah. And I had all these plans. The school I went to was in British Columbia. And I was like, well, my friends are all at the Cranberry Festival now. And my friends are doing this. And just a lot of, a lot of expectations over what my year was going to look like. Mm -hmm. And I ended up at home not being able to breathe, having to make a bunch of horrible decisions for my own health that shouldn't a 19-year-old shouldn't have to do, 19, 20-year-old. Yep.
0: I'm actually, I, I don't want to compare it to what some people are going through right now, but I am sort of in my mind thinking, you know, there's a lot of college kids are home right now too. And their friends are at school and they're, you know, kind of watching the world go by. and minus the illness. Well, not all of them. I guess some people Mm -hmm. are dealing with an illness as well, but um, I'm picturing you like that right now, where so many of us are struggling like that.
1: Yeah. That's, I think part of what's made me so emotional this year too, is hearing the stories about people who are 19, 20, had no underlying conditions, now have all these things that they're worried about, all this stuff they've missed, all these health problems they didn't have before, so, I think it's an apt comparison because that's that's been on my mind all year, yeah, like, I don't know exactly how you're feeling, but I know close to how you're feeling mm-hmm.
0: And if it's not, you know, I mean, obviously, young people can be affected by covid. so um some of them are sick with covid, but there's also a huge increase in you know mental health issues. Mm-hmm. So people are sitting at
1: home, literally some of them not able to breathe from anxiety and things like that, especially when I I was the only one going through that. And most of the most people want to give you that little head tilt and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And when they ask how you're doing, you know they don't really want to know how you're doing because it's not good.
0: Yeah. That's probably very different for you than it is currently in the pandemic because so many people can relate to the experience mm-hmm. that people are going through. And you really were alone. Mm-hmm did you
1: get support while you were home? I did. Um, I'm very fortunate that I had a former teacher of mine who went to go open his own, became a certified counselor and it was someone I really trusted Mm -hmm. and someone who understood me and, uh, went above and beyond as a teacher. So I was able to go see him as my therapist after it. Um, he's actually my therapist today. Mm-hmm. started seeing him again because of the pandemic, because I understand the mental health stuff. Yeah. Um, and that was the lifeline that I think I sorely missed when I had to go back to school. The
0: support that you were getting at home.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like there wasn't a lot of
0: support at school when you went back.
1: There wasn't. Um, being in Canada, It I did have like, oh, well, you've paid for this, uh, the year's worth of healthcare for school so you can access all these resources. I had them available. But when someone is grieving and someone's gone through trauma, getting out of bed, taking a shower, doing all of your basics, all that basic executive function stuff, that's, that's it. I was at capacity. So, to expect a 20 year old who's gone through the unthinkable to reach out while at school, I wasn't going to do it. Yeah.
0: You were doing everything you could at that point.
1: Yeah. I had no more spoons. I was at capacity. I was just trying to get up and get out of bed every day. Mm -hmm.
0: It's so, um, it, it talks, it hits me so hard because I feel like part of my mission is so much about educating, uh, not counselors, although I'm a big proponent, um, but educating peers on campus, your friends, your teachers, to be supportive because you can get support on campus, even if it's not through counselors. Mm -hmm. How are your friends? What was it like for you to come back to campus? Did you feel like they were able to, you know, be there for you? I think
1: a few were. I was also, I had gotten dumped in the meantime
0: yeah was not supportive
1: no as much as he could be there was a lot of stuff that came with my new diagnosis that I was like okay fine let's just end this now but I was living with him so I had to move out um Mm -hmm. and friends were trying to be supportive while still doing the whole do I have to pick sides thing and just I didn't I didn't know also in college that um I was neurodivergent. Um, I have really severe ADHD. So understanding that I tend to be more reserved with my big, big, big emotions just to not make people uncomfortable. I don't think I would have expressed to them how much I needed their help. Okay. So I had several friends who could, two friends that were at school with me who could read me like a book. And they were like, trying their best Mm -hmm. as much as a fellow 20 year old would understand. Um, but the person who I talked to the most, I'm actually married to now. And he was still back in Texas and he was supportive. Um, and it was mostly people back home. So I still felt really alone, but I was, as soon as I got back from class, I was on my laptop talking to either my husband or one of my best friends here. Okay. With something, you know. Um actually I feel like again
0: about the pandemic, like we keep saying like it's not not as good as in person, but you know, Zoom and FaceTime, they do they can work. They can certainly be yeah.
1: And I since I was a kid, would get yelled at for using my mom's dial up to go talk on Star Trek forums. So (laughs) I was no stranger to spending a lot of time talking to friends on the internet and that got me through it. Mm. I'd come back and have notes saying, hey, how are you doing today? What'd you do today? And they weren't addressing how I was feeling, but someone was still there actively worrying about me.
0: Yeah, it's really important to know that you've got a person, even if it's one person.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I'm glad that you had
1: that. What other
0: things did you find to be helpful to you? Um you know, you you sound like an artist. So I don't know if that was something that you used in college as a coping tool, as you know, stress reduction.
1: Um, Yeah, I uh, I was actually known for it in my dorm that I'd set up a little painting corner. So I'd have my door open, and like, oh, she's painting again. What are you doing? People would walk in and out. Um, but not. It's really hard for me to create when my mind is focused on a big emotion. Mm -hmm. I know it's part of how my brain's wired. So like this year, I haven't been able to really do much visual art unless someone's given me a commission. And that's kind of the mindset I was in after my clot. Right. And like now understanding it's how my brain's wired. I couldn't do that outlet. So as much as I could, I went on hikes as much as my lungs would allow. Mm -hmm. It was British Columbia. You could hike anywhere. It was cute. (laughs) It was great. Um, So hiking was a big thing um, because my creativity had just been, that faucet had just been turned off. Yeah. A lot of reading. I've always been someone who gets really hyper-focused in a book and I'll read an entire series in a week. So they saw a lot of me at the library. Um, But yeah, I was, I think I was more isolated after that than I feel like I have been in this pandemic. Because I only talked to two people online. Right. I didn't, was mostly in my room or off walking by myself.
0: And do you think that was because your friends just didn't know how to be supportive? Or do you think that was some of your own mental health challenges after such a horrible experience that
1: you went through? I think it was both. I think it is rare to find a peer when you're 20 who quite understands something huge like that. I mean, they're out there, but it's it's not super common. So, someone would be like trying to understand, but the complexity of it I always felt like was lost. So, I think some of it was some of it was me saying, "No, I'm feeling really big things and I'm going to make all of them uncomfortable if I start telling them about cuz I saw a psychiatrist after and I got diagnosed with CPTSD and I was having trouble going to my appointments cuz I had such trauma just from being at the hospital. So when you're 20 and you're telling your friends, "Hey, I have to take anxiety meds anytime I walk near a medical building." Yeah, that's heavy. Mhm. So, part of it was me and then I think part of it part of it was me trying to mask my emotions and be like, "I don't want to make you uncomfortable." Right. But I think part of it was just not having someone who understood that. And that's where I kind of wish the school would have had someone reach out to me. So they didn't do that. They had, they maybe had a counseling
0: center or something if you chose to walk in the door. Yes. But the outreach was
1: maybe less than stellar. Yeah, the outreach was less than stellar. You had to go make an appointment and... I hated calling to make appointments before I nearly died. So after I nearly died, that was a fat chance I wasn't going to do it. Mm
0: -hmm. I also, you know, you just brought up the PTSD. Um, I would really like to talk for a minute about what that, why would somebody develop PTSD after an illness? Um, You and I have already talked a little bit, so I would love for you to share a little bit more about the experiences that you went through in a hospital setting that can be so traumatic and um, and how it, we could talk more about how um, your experience can, you know, other people can identify with the experience because, you know, you are one person um, and there's a whole bunch of other people who've got, other you know, who are marginalized for lots of different reasons. And people don't often realize that going to a hospital can really be traumatizing.
1: Yes. So what was that for you?
0: What happened to you in the hospital? Was it a procedure? Was it the way you were treated that was
1: not- uh yes, yes to all. Um <laughs> leading up to it, no one would believe that I was really sick. Um I had gained a lot of weight because hey, I couldn't breathe, so I couldn't really move much. Mm-hmm. Um, and doctors get very fat phobic. And they're like, there's nothing wrong with you. Just lose some weight. Mm. I was like, I don't think that's the problem. And I was right. Right. Um, But I wasn't taken seriously uh, going into the hospital with my chest pain and my breathing the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, I really think they saw a little girl and they thought I was being dramatic um, and then anxiety attack or something like that. Yeah. They, they told me it was pleurisy and I probably just had a little lung and inf- a little rep- respiratory infection. Okay. And, uh, then I finally, when my oxygen got so low that I collapsed in the ER, um, I couldn't see my oxygen was so low. I, my vision wasn't there, but I could hear and I could feel what they were doing. Mm-hmm and as they're wheeling me back and as they're like cutting my shirt open and as they're like saying words that i know mean they're prepared to like crack my chest open um they're like well she's like 19 this is what happened it's a drug overdose i was given no consideration for anything but being some college kid who made a mistake mhm So it wasn't until that ER doctor, who thankfully was on duty, who turned me away the first time, said, no, she came in six weeks ago. This isn't a drug overdose. Right. So I was poked and prodded. Um, And it doesn't help that every medical professional who came in and saw what happened said, wow, you should be dead. Oh, wow which I know is meant to say, it's a miracle you're alive. But when people keep telling you, you should be dead, you should be dead. You're like, well, is it a mistake that I'm not? What's what's wrong? And, and it, is it going to happen any minute? Am I going to die? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you really get that anxiety. Um, six weeks after that, I had sepsis from something I caught in my initial hospital, say. So that was a whole other ordeal. They tried to put um, ports in me to give me antibiotics, but because of my clotting disorder, it was hard to get that started. Um, They were doing just really invasive uh, looks at my heart and all these things to figure out what was wrong with me. And it was all very dehumanizing. Um, You had a lot of people talking about you like you're not in the room, mm-hmm. um, and it was hard. Um, I had to go to the doctor every single week after I was released, um, because I was on blood thinners, and they're checking, um, they're checking my levels to make sure it wasn't too thin because I look like an old banana sometimes when they gave me too many meds, <laughs> um but it was really dehumanizing. And even with the best intentions, going in and telling someone you should be dead is probably not great bedside manner.
0: Right. And you're 20 years old. And, you know, hopefully you hadn't had to spend too much time with doctors before that. Probably since then, you've had to spend lots of time. And I wonder how that sort of shaped the relationship that you have and the trust that you have with medical professionals.
1: Well, my mother is a retired doctor. Okay. Um. So when your mommy's been doing your medical stuff <laughs> for so long, uh, everyone else's bedside manner is very far removed from that. Right. Um. But since then, I hate going to the doctor. I hate it. I actually was just... I had some appointments moved for a virtual visit I have tomorrow, and I've been like, ah. So it's you know, it's a decade later, and I'm still, I still can't make the phone calls very mm-hmm. easily. Um, I'm I used to have to take anxiety medicine for every appointment, but with therapy and like working on things, I'm fine. Um, but now it kind of surfaces is like, oh, my friend just had a baby. Let me go. Visit, let me have a panic attack in the car real quick Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I parked and I've kind of just associated, and I was like, oh, I've been sitting here for half an hour. So sometimes that happens still, but yeah, I don't trust doctors. Now,
0: I'm also wondering about contraception. So you were diagnosed because you were taking oral contraception, which I guess meant that you could no longer take that. So then you have to have a conversation about contraception with the doctor. And how did that go?
1: I had seen a bunch of uh, male doctors who said, well, it's fine. If you get pregnant, you just do these shots in your stomach every day and you'll probably be okay. And I'm someone who likes to do a lot of research. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm looking at these actual women saying, hey, I have this condition, I've had 10 miscarriages and I had to have a blood transfusion and now I have my baby, which Mm -hmm. that's their choice. If they want that child, I wish them all the luck in the world and all the best to try to get that kid that way. But for me, I never really wanted pregnancy. I wanted the kid, I never really wanted pregnancy it was a no brainer. Like all my life I said, yeah, I'll probably have a kid of my own and adopt. Like adoption was always the thing I wanted to do. So I made the decision to get um, a procedure that's kind of like a tubal ligation. I had to go through a bunch of people telling me I was making the biggest mistake of my life on my way to try to not die again. I'm just
0: thinking what that feels like for a young woman to have to ask people permission to make choices about her body.
1: It was, it was surreal to have to try to argue the fact that I knew I didn't want to risk having another blood clot. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had, I had nurses on my way in telling me, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. A baby is the best gift you could ever give your husband. And I'm like, okay, I'd buy him a Nintendo Switch later on. So it's not quite a baby. Yeah, it's not quite a baby, but it's up there and he's in the other room playing with the Nintendo Switch right now.
0: This episode is brought to you by Inner Harbor, providing grief support to students and those that support them. Find us at www.inner-harbor.org.
1: Just because I am someone with a uterus, it is assumed that I don't know what I'm talking about and I must want to do that later. And even getting mental health care, um, getting diagnosed with ADHD, I had a doctor say, well, you must be depressed because I see you had a sterilization procedure in 2012 and I think it's depression. I was like, no, not depressed about that. Right. I feel good about that. So right. it still comes up. It's still really frustrating. Wow. And
0: you know, the reality is, most uterus owners have children. Yeah. I don't know the percentages, but most of them do. And I am wondering about like, you know, your friends when they, you were, you know, 22 years old having this procedure. And what their thoughts were and if you can relate to them. And you were mentioning before that, you know, you have friends that are having children now. And
1: what the- yeah, I love being Aunt Brianne. <laughs> and they were like, I want you around. And all of my friends have, they're like, I can't wait till you can adopt. Mm-hmm. Um, my friends wanted me around more than they wanted a kid that looked like me hanging around. Mm-hmm. So my friends are nonstop supportive and my friends with kids, I love their kids. And there are so many ways to be nurturing and help with a child. Like it takes a village. Absolutely. So I'm happy to be in those kids' lives until we adopt our own. And my friends are over the top supportive. That's great. So what were some of
0: the other issues that you struggled with? Like you did go, I I believe you had told me once that you switched schools after this procedure.
1: I did um my school in Canada it didn't feel like home anymore. Mm. Um there were new students there and the campus had changed and some of my favorite professors were gone and I was like okay now I realize I I'm getting depressed. And a lot of it is being here away from the support of those people that I was talking to online all the time, right? Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do next, so I moved uh, to Florida where my mom was. Well, I figured it out. Mm -hmm. I was there for six months, and I did not enjoy that either. (laughs) So I decided to move back to Dallas and go to uh, the University of North Texas, but it wasn't home anymore. So I realized my environment was part of what was adding to my, my depression from dealing with the trauma
0: when you were trying to decide, like, where should I be? You chose a place where you already had a good support system at a time where you really needed some good support.
1: Yeah, going back home, in a sense, I felt like if I go back home to Dallas, I will have failed up here in Canada. And I had to realize I didn't fail. Circumstances changed. Mm -hmm. I need to start writing my plans in pencil and not writing them in pen. So I just went to where... I had more for me already. Yep. So it was hard. It was really hard finishing school there, but I had people to help me there.
0: I think that's a really good thing to think about for people who are grieving any kind of a loss. Um, that changes us. So it literally changes who we are as people. And that means that our needs have changed and we might have to do things differently than we ever have before. So We have to be open to the, opportunities and um, options that may be available
1: yeah and i am i'm 100 percent. that was just a very terrifying catalyst for change but i am a, i feel like a completely different person from after that happened yeah so i needed a completely different environment for sure. so how are you coping now with
0: like the pandemic uh just life in general um What do you do now to make sure that you take good care of yourself or maybe you're not taking good care of yourself. So you can also talk about that.
1: Yeah. That uh, my ADHD diagnosis was actually uh, in November. Mm -hmm. I was not doing good. Um, All of the therapy I had and all of the tools I was given to manage this stress, the level of overwhelm and anxiety was too high for me to get to use any of those tools yeah and probably some of those
0: tools were no longer available like
1: structure this year is me learning to not work against my brain Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and start working with how my brain is wired and i'm gonna go into life post-pandemic not trying to pretend I'm neurotypical and try to feel those very big emotions I've been masking, which was an issue when I had my blood clots. Because right. the ADHD brain chemically has much more intense emotions. And looking back on that trauma 10 years ago, I was healing them and I was hiding them. hmm And so this year has been like, hey, you've had all these emotions you've hidden and the bills do, you have to pay up. You got to feel them at some point. So uh, this year has been enlightening Hmm. for taking care of myself. How do you
0: allow yourself those feelings? What do you do to make sure that you are expressing yourself?
1: I'm trying to just be much more honest about how I'm feeling. You know, I've been telling people Hey, this really upset me, and I'm going to say something really impulsive if I don't take some time. So I'll talk to you in a couple of days. Good for you. I'll let people know I'm upset. Mm-hmm. Um, I recorded my podcast last night, and I had full blown meltdown five minutes before it started because my blender broke. So I told them, "Hey guys, I'm sorry. Uh, really upset. My blender broke. Um, but it's fine. Just saying, like I'm not okay." being honest
0: yep good for you
1: yeah and it feels like since I decided to do that everyone's been trying the universe has been trying to test me and make sure I have a lot of things to share but
0: (laughs) well I hope you keep sharing because it's um I I hope it's validating for other people to hear so
1: I hope so because I felt I got called dramatic a lot as a kid I got called over the top and you're not you have your feelings and they will be felt at some point and do not wait until you're 30 and you're Hulk smashing your trash can because you ran out of coffee and you don't understand why you're so angry about it
0: <laughs> I hope just hearing that will make sure somebody else doesn't smash their trash can
1: yes it's a really nice trash can I felt terrible about it Really <laughs> terrible about it <sighs> If people have questions or they want to reach
0: out or check out your art, how can they do that?
1: Yeah, um, I am on Instagram, uh, Brienne underscore Leeson, and that is mostly me uh, shouting out into the void and memes. (laughs) Um, My art is at Bellana Arts, um, B E L L O N A A R T S, on Instagram, and that's my art and about eight other North Texas artists on there. My podcast is. At Lucky Winner Show and it is about death. And sometimes I'll write things. I'm like, oh, this is about this and this was about this. I didn't realize I felt this way. <laughs> but I swear it's positive. Um I think comparisons to like uh, Beetlejuice and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and stuff have been made. So it's it's fun. But yeah, if anyone wants to reach out um about any of it, I'm more than happy to talk because I wish I would have had people to reach out to who had been through something similar. Thanks for sharing your story. Yeah, and thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much to Brianne for sharing your story with us. Also, thank you as always to Stephen Bluestein for audio production. Next week, we're talking to um, a senior from Penn State University. Her name is Taylor Marie Young. She's an incredible young woman who started a support service for students in the middle of the pandemic because she realized that there's not enough support on college campuses for kids who are really struggling with the isolation and stress created from this pandemic. And I think what she's done is an incredible model that other students and other universities should be aware of. So I wanted to interview her so everybody can learn about What kinds of things that students can be doing to create the support that may be needed on their campus? So tune in next week for that. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.